לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Partial Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey, but really still in Jerusalem now in Israel. Highland Park, New Jersey. Uh, Highland Park Conservative Depot. Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter, Day School, Long Island. Rabbi Jeremy Kamanovsky, Sheikh Hassan. It's great to see you guys. We can do this even be, by being so far away. We have the name to announce, Amalia Yona, my granddaughter's name. This was a beautiful event that took place on Sunday. We named this little precious little, little teeny thing. She's very, very cute. And we're very, very excited about that. And uh, I'll be coming back soon. Been away for a while. And this week, we are reading Parshat Pahalotcha. You know, in Israel, they read Pahalotcha last week. So I get a, a, a redo. Um uh, this week in Israel, it's Parsha Shlach, and and so you know we're we're going to be out of sync with uh, our Israeli brothers and sisters. But back to Bahalotcha. Bahalotcha starts by picking up on just it's kind of the postscript of of last week's Parsha, the lighting of the menorah, um, and um, we have you know some material at the beginning of this Parsha. Dealing with the ordination of the priests, the, the the Levites, take the Levites, consecrate them to me. I always like the idea that the Levites are the replacements for the the the, the firstborn, um, and uh, the way that they are consecrated is you know through the tnufa, hinafta otam tnufa. You have to wave the Levites. That that's a very interesting thing. Um, we have. This idea that there are people that are not able to make Passover at the time, and so they get an opportunity to do it the following month, Pesach Sheni. Uh, that a series of, of uh, laws pertaining to the people who are impure or away. And then uh, some descriptions of the way that the people move in the desert um, it's rather poetic. That the cloud lifts from the uh, sanctuary and the people move forward and they move forward uh, at, at God's will. All of that is what's, what's taking place at the beginning of the Parsha. Um, and then uh, we have some an account of the trumpets, the silver trumpets that are Made and they are uh, announcing. They they function in uh, a way to uh, you know accompany the sacrifices and also move the people. And we have uh, what all synagogue people understand. You, you know this the verses that accompany the um, the opening of the ark and the return of the Torah to the ark, uh, separated by two upside down nuns. These are. 
very interesting little diacritical marks in the Torah. We know that. And when they settled down the ark, that God returned and God, the, the, the myriads of the thousands of Israel. Um, and then, of course, we get into the the real uh, meat of the parsha. <laughs> so it's not real meat; it's quail. Please, quail. <laughs> but um, let's talk for a second about the first verse in that in that chapter, which is "Vayihi ha'am kemit onanim ra Adonai." The people were complaining. They complained. They were ra Adonai. Uh, bad. Um, and we have seen B'nai Israel complain before. Um, are we reaching a moment here where the volume of their complaints is just increasing? Are we reaching a moment where the content of their complaint is different? Um, are we reaching a moment of, of deeper frustration in Moses? Uh, and And, you know, just if you were to kind of take your barometer and measure the temperature of of the tension here, um, what's going on, and 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 where are we with, with this, and how are the people really behaving, and and um, you know why is it that they always seem to be complaining? Is that is that just something about the nature of, Jews. of this people or Jews? Jews. Jews. All right. Well. Talk about they were it. thinking about the future. <laughs> and so they romanticized the past. So you ask a lot of good questions, Elliot, and part of it depends on what we actually think the book is. So the episode that we're going to read about with the quail has a parallel in Safer Schmoked. And when you were talking about the lighting of the menorah in the Mishkan, it occurred to me that in Sefer Bimidbar, the Mishkan, the Oho Moed, the tabernacle, is a safe haven where everything works. People are commanded to do something, and they do it. In Sefer Vayikra, the great story, the two stories that are actually in the book, one of them is a disaster that takes place in the Oho Moed. It's not mm -hmm. a safe place where, even though everything is built around it, danger lurks and then erupts in the flame. Here in Bahalotcha, the flame is a controlled flame. It's one that the Kohanim will light. You know, we sometimes forget that the purpose of lighting this menorah is to shed light. I wanted to suggest a nice tie-in. There's a rabbinic comment that the two inverted nuns make Sefer B'midbar actually three books of the Torah. So if we follow that, we have seven books of the Torah, one for each branch of the menorah, so that the lighting of the menorah is oh. equivalent to our study of Torah. Interesting. Very nice. That's very lovely. Um, you know, I uh, the the one thing you can always be counted on. One thing that can always be counted on in the in the Torah is when the people romanticize Egypt. Something bad happens. You know, this is a book about liberation from Egypt. You know, heading heading to Sinai, heading towards the Promised Land, and I think that. That you know this this complaint is so terrible because they said you know man we remember you know 
מי יאכיל לנו בשר? What's about the food? זכרנו את הדגה שנאכל מצרים חינם. We remember, just like all you have to do is stick your, stick your basket down into the Nile and you were coming out with great fish uh, for free. את הקשועים, את האבטיחים ואת החצר ואת הבזלים ואת השומים, all these aromatic, you know, onion type vegetables, leeks and onions and garlic and melons and cucumbers. And now we have nothing but this, not this, this, nafshem of Yvesha, our souls are dried out. In kol bilti el haman eneinu. We have nothing to look at except this wretched manna. I can't stand this old being taken care of God thing. What have happened to what happened to you know all the good food in Egypt? And I think that just, I, you know, it's it's like it's like the kid who says to the parent, "I wish I was never born." <laughs> you know, they're they're on this great spiritual path from Egyptian slavery towards towards to receive the Torah and to implement it as part of. living in, in society in the land of Israel, and they want to go back to be slaves again because the food was good. Uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 that expression, nafshenu yevesha, so I looked up the Everett Fox translation. He says it's, our throats are dry. And, and of course, you know, that, that's, that would be the precise, um, you know, interpretation. Nefesh, you know, higiyamayim ad nafesh, that the word nefesh seems to be, you know, the throat, Uh, our throats are dry and, and you read the list of all the things that they, they're they miss they're all kind of like you know uh water yeah cruciferous kinds of yeah. thing avatia you know and and water melons you know water rich you know uh fruits and vegetables um and and the, there seems to be not only the that sense of you know we're we're thirsty we're parched but we're also like We're just empty. We're, 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 we're just done. We're done with well, this. What the trap, slavery had many tragedies, but one of them is that it crippled their sense of gratitude. Right? The manna is there for the taking. Not unlike the fish that you describe in the basket in the Nile, because it comes every day. And a double portion on Friday. But that's not good enough. But it's not like they're hungry, is they don't like the food. But they do absolutely nothing for the food. The food is delivered to them. You know, they, uh, they're acting like little kids. Well, let me ask you this question, just, you know, it's, 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 is, is gratitude, can you, can you educate gratitude? Can absolutely. You... That's the whole purpose of religion, I've thought for many years, is to teach the attitude of gratitude. Okay. And it, we have to learn how to say thank you and to show appreciation for what we have. It's not something that we're born with. And when we think back, as you will come to know again, as your granddaughter grows, that it does take an education to get that across. Because little kids do not know how to behave. They have to be taught. And we all have had experiences, hopefully not with our own kids, of being with kids that have been improperly educated. And they're not a lot of fun to be around. So I, I, I have a kind of idyllic picture of this people because, you know, I, I, I seem, I'm back at the Exodus and I, I have this interpretation I'm very committed to, which is that the night of the Exodus, they were, they, they did everything that they were supposed to do. Uh, and that they, they, for one moment, they were, They were grateful. Um, 
and that the moment doesn't last a long and and here we are again and here we are again and, and it's just going to keep going like this um get, you know is there any program to to teach this to teach gratitude and you're saying basically that the the core of the religious experience ought to be well the rabbis had a program it was rabbi meir i think who said you have to say 100 brachot 100 blessings every day 100 times a day you have to thank god it doesn't matter actually if you think god but you have to thank someone for all the things that we take for granted like opening our eyes in the morning okay getting dressed taking a few steps those are all things that demand a blessing an act of gratitude and so, you know it's <laughs> interesting we've talked a little bit about this there are two parshiot um in uh the and then kitabo where we have a lengthy list of curses the blessings are much shorter because people naturally can tell you everything that went wrong that day mm -hmm. but we've had the experience you ask your kid how school was fine it's a one-word answer something bad happened it takes an hour for them to tell you sure, sure, sure. <laughs> well Barry I, I love what you're what you're saying here about um the the educative function of religious practice and ritual so I I think that's quite right I mean I don't I'm not a thousand percent sure that you know the the, the affective dimension I, I'm sure the affective dimension is not um uh, absent um you know is, is like it's not totally missing from education but it is easier to tell people what to do than to tell people um uh uh how to feel i do think you can educate people's hearts if i didn't think that we'd all we'd all be in a lot of trouble um but uh but i do think that the whole point is to is to is to educate people's hearts to feel that i agree with you that sense of gratitude that sense of wonder but I just want to return for a second to uh, the immediate problem that they're facing in this passage, which is that the, the journey's long, the journey's hard. They have not yet even received the 40-year punishment. Um, uh, they not, not, uh, uh, haven't received the 40-year punishment of, of, of dying in the desert. But the point is that the, even if, let's assume that they said brachas, Let's assume that they said 100 brachas in the day. Let's assume they davened shacharit and, and did all those things. But it was... But did they say the second yukum porkan? They, they said the second yukum porkan. But they, they, um, they still thought back to the... the, the in, in its own way, the, the, the kind of pampered, affluent quality of being the, on the bottom of the, of the pyramid of a wealthy society. Like, I think this is this interesting question about, okay, because, you know, point of fact, Egypt, the Nile Delta, fertile area. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. They must have had awesome cantaloupe. And now they're in now they're in the Sinai Desert. And cantaloupe. So, let's so, go back to the verse for a second. And it says, There were like complainers because they're complaining like they used to do in Egypt. Because Slaves complain a lot. Because they have a very hard life. It's very hard for a slave to have appreciation of thankfulness, I, I would think. And 
even though they've been out of Egypt a year, they're still living as if they're still in Egypt because it takes a long time to get that out of them. And they haven't been tested yet. That will come next week in Shalach. But they cannot, you know, when you look at their complaint, it doesn't quite register. Why are they really complaining? Have they been led astray? No, they're on the path. Does, and, it, take, does it take a long time for Moses to, to recognize this? Because Moses, in this in this particular story, is 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 frustrated, is completely frustrated. Look what he says. He says, um, uh, I can't carry this people by myself. Before, you know, and he's saying, um, you know, did, did I, you know, gestate this people? Did I give birth to this people? That, that it should be said to me, you would say to me, carry this people in your, uh, you know, on you. As a mother suckles a, a, a child, you know, he's, he's using this very, very, um, you know, uh, audacious imagery of him as the, 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 you know, the, the person who's birthed this people. Um, and you get the sense that Moses has to learn something also about being the leader. So the female in imagery is striking. So what Moses is saying in one on one level is that he's not the mother. The question, does he see himself as the father or perhaps the stepfather? Mm -hmm. Someone disconnected from the people. And that heightens his frustration. Because if we think back to Exodus, this is not the job he signed up for. Yeah. It's thrust upon him. He, he wanted to do something else with his life. Well, you know, he 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 given this mission that he's going to take the people and bring them into the land. You know, that that's, that's so how it's his, supposed to work. He also has difficulty with gratitude, but yeah. he has a, a terribly difficult job. Mm. You know, as you could well appreciate, I imagine he's the parent of the kid that's crying on the transatlantic flight. <laughs> right? Everyone else is upset, but if you're the parent, what are you supposed to do? You can't leave. You have yeah. to kind of grin and bear it. Well, will somebody please pick up their kid? <laughs> <laughs> you swaddle the child, you feed the child, and and the, you know that's it. There's a sense of helplessness that 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 here the child, the the, the people are are helpless. They're infantile, um, and um, and and he doesn't have the capacity to to provide for them in the way that they need. It's just what it is. Can can I just uh... but. To tell you something spectacular here, based on the the uh, my 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 vast and in, incalculable Torah knowledge and the great and the great resources at my fingertips of Google, Ibu Google, uh, I discovered that there's like, of course, people ask this question: What bracha did they say on the manna? Oh. And and uh, different different people said different things. There's a medieval report. Uh, let me pull this one up. There's a medieval report here that they have in the name of Yehuda HaChasid 
Hanoten lechem min hashamayim, because you remember it says back in Exodus, in any mam tir lechem lechem min hashamayim. Uh, so they didn't say. They can't say hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Can't say hamotzi lechem min haaretz because it didn't come from the haaretz. It came from the shamayim. And there's a view of a kabbalist called Menachem Azariah Defano who said that in the future, they, we will say the bracha hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. That's pretty cool. All right, so close your eyes that. and just and just meditate on that one for a second, which is, you know, what what's he really saying here? <laughs> well, I think what he's saying is that we will be sustained by a miracle. Uh-huh. And I think one of the difficulties that we have today is that we don't appreciate miracles. So when I was much younger, I read a lot of Martin Buber. And one of the points that Buber makes is that a miracle is not a supernatural event. It's the people's interpretation of the event. Mm-hmm. And because he was a naturalist. But, and that's always stayed with me because lots of times we experience miracles, but we don't frame them as a miracle. And the example I always give with my students, which is now quite dated, the Six-Day War, people who lived through it, the Jews experienced it as a miracle. That was not the report in the New York Times, though. Mm-hmm. Right? They gave a rational explanation for why Israel was able to defeat its neighboring countries. But I think if you talk to people who are alive, they would say it was a miracle. They might not attribute it to God, you know, secular people perhaps, but people understood that something great had happened that they had witnessed and lived through. Um. We we, um, we we then go into this this passage where where uh, God wants to lighten the burden for Moses and tells him to gather up seventy men to to kind of lead the people with him, um, and uh, just take me into this passage here where uh, G- God says. Um, Take, gather 70 people, 70 men from the people of Israel that you know. I just lost the passage here. Um, and um, uh, and then what happens then is that um, they he gathers them up and puts them around the tent. God comes down in the cloud by the very love, and God speaks to Moses and something happens to the spirit that is with him. By the spirit gets shared by and it is distributed to the seventy people as the. That spirit settles on them. They start to prophesy, and they don't stop. It's it's a it's an amazing moment where where all of a sudden the there's it's in in the attempt to help Moses out. Everybody gets um, as it were a piece of the divine spirit, um, and Moses doesn't seem to be bothered by that. I think that's the remarkable part about this is that is that here the 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 divine spirit and the power that is uh, invested in that um, is something that Moses um, 
delights in and, and delights in having everybody that 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 cohort the the leadership have um that's a unique quality in in his own leadership would you not say um and then of course we have the very next scene where where you know it's going out of hand to two of the people Eldad and Medad are, are prophesying in the in the community Joshua is you know dispatched to see all this and, and he comes back to Moses and says yeah these these people are are prophesying and and Moses is reacting, lock them up lock them this up. is where it first came lock them up lock so them what up. is Moses's reaction Barry and talk to us about that so he says would that everyone be a prophet so while you're explaining the scene Elliot it occurs to me that the problem from Moses's point of view is not a problem of leadership, that he's incapable as a leader, but that the people do not have enough access to God because Moses is limited as a human being. Now that there are so many other people with the spirit of God, it's a blessing for the people. <laughs> and, you know, I've been reading a lot of biblical criticism lately, and I'm struck by the line that's going to come up in the last chapter of the Parsha this week, that Moses was the most modest of people. And that's really a comment on his response here, I think. That another person might say, I need help myself. I don't need you to give other people my job. But Moses says, if I can't do this and God could allow other people to do this, then that's great because that makes it easier for me and it's better for everyone. Well, even I would even go in a slightly different angle, but in the same general direction. Uh, yes, we do know that Moses needs some help, and he does ask for this help. But the the, the uh, there's a reorientation towards what the whole point of Mosaic leadership is, right? Like so, Moses, Moses leadership. Um, the 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 what is it that you're trying to do to these people? You're trying to just get them from, you know, Egypt to to Gilgal. Are you just trying to physically move them? Because that's, you know, then you need, you know, Dwight Eisenhower to, or George Marshall to plan out all the steps in this long military campaign. Are you actually trying to teach people a religious orientation to the world to make the divine voice audible, to bring them to Sinai and hear Torah? And, and, and what did they do back then, you know, at Sinai? They ran away. The voice was so loud, the people ran away. And Moses said, no, 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 don't run away. You know, God is just wanting to know you're going to have this kind of level of awe for, for the rest of time. And they don't successfully keep that up. But when Eldad and Medad are, hit this ecstasy, you could imagine a human leader, you know, we made a Donald Trump joke before, so I'll make, I'll make one now. I alone can fix this. This is about me yeah. and my leadership. And Moses says, okay, by the way, you know why I'm doing my job, right? It's so that prophecy will spread through all the people and all the people will have access to the divine. So me ten ki ten would that all the people of God were prophets as God puts the divine spirit upon them. That's the point. And so the the human, you know, Joshua says, um, you know, your poll numbers aren't going to be as good after this. He said, I don't care. The point is that Eldon and Medan and you and me and everybody else gets the, the divine spirit. Just, I, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm reminded of, you know, one one theory of rabbinic leadership, which is to make rabbis obsolete, which is to say to to 
and I don't want to like use the word because it's overused, but empower people to empower everyone to to do it themselves, and and in that way they won't need this. But but you know, obviously the tension of this is that you always need a leader and you always need a teacher. Even teachers need teachers, and and leaders need people that they can you know consult with and be advised by that that don't lead them, but they they. They don't do it in a vacuum. You can't, you can't have a a functioning group without some kind of of leadership. Otherwise, it just kind of becomes impossible. You see what happens with leaderless movements, right? I used to think about that obsolete thing. Yeah, and, I used to think, and after twenty plus years of working in a shul which has a high degree of lay leadership, um, I I. Of course, you know, I have some self-interest in this question, but um, I, I, I don't think that that's, I, I agree with where you're heading. Yeah. You want to involve people, what you, what you want is not to be leaderless. Uh, ultimately, you're not heading for an anarchist collective because that probably is not going to get that successful. I, I do think that the rabbinic leadership, intellectual leadership, spiritual leadership, musical leadership, football teams and basketball teams and whatever, you, you do need leaders who will point people to things that they didn't know that they wanted, that they didn't know that they could aspire to, make them think and make them reflect and give them tools. But the, what you can't do is like not involve them. The whole, whole point is actually to involve somebody in the team, uh, involve somebody in the process. And so Moshe, when Moshe, what I would like to hear, what I would like to interpret Moshe as saying is the point is not that you all, you know, do what I say and follow me because I'm saying it but that I will teach you things that will enable you to be your best selves. Yeah. It's, it's just, so we, we have a couple of minutes to, to explore the scene at the end, which is, which is a scene of, I'm going to just say it. It's, it's, it seems like just rank jealousy where, where Miriam and Aaron complain, they complain uh, among themselves or they're, they're talking. Um, and it says basically that, um, well, let's see. Um, uh, but to the bear Miriam Aaron, they talk about his wife for a second. We're not going to talk about that. Does God only speak to Moses? He, he speaks to us also. And and I see that as a as a, a moment of unbelievable candor honesty and just you know jealousy he's got the relationship so when you say that Elliot, what are you saying that they are saying miriam and aaron that they want god to speak to them more no they want the, that they want i i would think that what the that the that the interpretation we're putting out here is um they're upset that they're clearly number two and three like they're Everybody knows that that's true. Everybody knows that God speaks to Aaron any number of times, and everybody remembers that Miriam was the was the great singer at the sea. But they're clearly not the leaders, the boss leaders. And that's what they Aaron, are. Aaron is Aaron is the Kohen Gadol for crying out loud, and and he's, he's just kind of jealous that he's not Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah, be hard I, to be I, I do think this is there. This is a moment where they're putting. Their their feelings right in front of us. They're saying, "He's got this relationship, and we don't." And 
you know, I mean, at, at, at a certain point, that you all, we all have to come to terms with the fact that we are who we are. And, um, you know, we, we, we only have so much talent. We only have so much, you know, intellectual capacity. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, years ago when the seminary put out um, these high holiday ads, right? And it, there was something to the tune of like, not everybody's Michael Jordan. Not everyone can 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 throw a basket in a ball in a basket. You know, you can't think of yourself as being, but you can certainly be the best of who you are, and you can make yourself into you know a more perfect version of yourself. And um, the Zeusia story. Yeah. No. So so the 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 point I think is, you know, they for a moment they're imagining themselves as if they were Moses and as if they could have that relationship. And it's the jealousy of that relationship that really corrodes them, I think. Rather than say, look, I admire him. Look at that. And he, there is an element of sacrifice there. There's an element of worthiness there. There's an element of, you know, unapproachability there. It's, it's, we're not him. So, yeah. Yeah, what I want to add, so just a, a little piece about the previous part of the conversation. Moses is not becoming obsolete. His leadership is augmented. And I think that's an important point because when we look at the, the story in chapter 12 with Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe, everyone has a role. And Aaron and Miriam don't understand their role. Their role is that God speaks to them occasionally, and then they respond. Mm -hmm. Moses's role is that God speaks to him a lot, and he has to lead the people. And as we know, it's not a role necessarily that Moshe chose, but it's a role that only he can play. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make him better, which Miriam and Aaron might think, but because he also has a role. And he has to play his role. And your role has nothing to do with his role, as God makes clear when he says, you've completely misunderstood. You know, I throw you a few crumbs, shirayim as it were, you know, remnants from the Rebbe's challah. And Moses, he gets the whole, he eats at my table. It, 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 it doesn't make him better. Except it totally makes him better. <laughs> it must be not easy to be Moshe Rabbeinu's brother. Like you know, there's a there's a basketball player, an NBA basketball player, Seth Curry. He's Steph Curry's brother, and he's an NBA basketball player, and he's great. He's just he's just Steph Curry's brother. Okay, it must be hard to be Steph Curry's brother. I'm sure it was hard to be be Moses between Aaron and Miriam. But I wanted to just pick up on one thing. You know, uh, we, we, Elliot said we would skip over and we will skip over the, you know, the, the story talks about he married an Ethiopian woman. So you, we, American Jews are almost, you know, inevitably we're going to talk about this as a racial story. Although that's not how classical people mostly read it um, as, a, as a, a thing about, you know, he married this black woman. What could this be? No, actually, most people read it the other way, which is to say that, that Moses and Marian speak al odot hakushit, which means on behalf of the Kushi Kushite woman that Moses married. Um, and you know, Barry said, you know, it speaks to Moses, Aaron and Miriam on an occasional basis, Moses all the time. So a classical way of reading this story, which is re replicated in the Rashi, is that Moses, because he always had to be ready to work with God, he was he was God's 
so to speak, right-hand man all the time, was celibate. And when and when Aaron and Miriam spoke al-odot ha-kushit, they were speaking on behalf of the Kushite woman that he married. This poor woman, who's got a celibate husband. That wasn't fair. That wasn't part of the deal. He should also have to live normal family life. And so I, there's something uh, perhaps sweet about the complaint. I, I basically think this is about jealousy. I basically think that this is about how hard it is to be, you know, the star's, the star's sibling, even for the greatness of their own role, and Aaron being Cohen Gadol for crying out loud. But I, I also think it's interesting, given that we're just a week away from reading about this, this past week, read the Sota, that the, the, about the, the suspected you know, adulteress. The, the, the trial by ordeal of the suspected adulteress driven by an insanely jealous husband. And we read about the Nazir, the Nazir who just like completely goes off and takes yes. these extreme religious vows. And in some sense, the Torah in both cases is like, come on, can you just be normal, be normal. And I could hear Moses, I could hear Aaron and Miriam saying at some level, you know, can you just be normal? Can you be, can you be a husband and a father? And, uh, and you, you know, you, you don't have to be in, you don't have to be in your job a hundred percent of the time. It's fascinating. You know, it leaves us with so many, you know, questions and, and just, I think it sets us up for for what's going to be the crisis, which is next week, which is the the episodes of the spines and how that's going to change everything. Well, we've reached the the end of our time together. Uh, again, we want to thank people watching and people listening. It's so great that you're with us, and uh, we really, really enjoy your comments, and uh, we really value the fact that you have chosen to spend this time with us. And we look forward again next week to this crisis, the crisis moment in the, the desert stories. In the meantime, I want to say to everyone, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. And we'll see you next week. I'll be back in North America next week. See you next week. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.